Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits. He pardons all our iniquities. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. Our Father, we know that you've not dealt with us in justice alone, but you've dealt with us in mercy and grace for all who have called upon you, all that revere you, those who fear your name. You've shown compassion and forgiveness. You've buried our sins in the deepest sea. You've removed them as far as the east is from the west. You remember them no more. You don't hold them against us. For that, we are eternally grateful. We owe you everything. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did to make justice satisfied so that we could know you in a real life-changing way through the indwelling presence of the Spirit whom you sent. Holy Spirit, thank you for being our teacher, and we pray for your ministry today in our midst that those who have never met you, that you would open up their eyes to the reality of what you're really like, what God is like, and their need to find forgiveness and to be made clean. And those who have met you, we pray that you would help us to understand the Scripture, that it would be like food, that we would grow this morning and be changed uh, through the uh, Word of God that is implanted in us. So we need your help. We come as little children like Samuel who said, Speak to us, O Lord. We ask you to speak today. I pray that you'd help me and fill me and all that listen, that you would move in our midst that we would be a different people because we've met here today. And we thank you in advance for what you will accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take God's holy and Aaron inspired word and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 9. If you're with us for the first time, almost a year ago, we began a verse-by-verse study of the Revelation. And this morning, you can see the message is, when hell invades the earth. Now, we often use the idiom hell on earth to describe a difficult time. And so we say, well, my new boss has made my life hell on earth. Or the headline there in the Wall Street Journal a few days ago was entitled, Flew from Hell. Uh, Puerto Rico, 45% of the people as of last week still have no power from the same hurricane we went through last September. And one person who was interviewed this week said, since the hurricane came through our island, life has been hell on earth. I heard someone else describing the Las Vegas shooting that way when interviewed, and still another person interviewed after the California fires. And so if you say, my life or life is like hell on earth, you're describing a very, very difficult time that you are encountering. And again, we use the idiom very loosely and sometimes to exaggerate our circumstances. But what we have here this morning is a literal picture of hell on earth. I mean, momentarily, for a period of months, God is going to unleash 
a legion of evil like the world has never, ever seen before. Revelation chapter 9, follow along as we begin reading in verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened up the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, and as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man." And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Now, as we move through the Revelation, we have been learning quite a bit about angels. And we live in a day where both Christians and non-Christians are both grossly misinformed about angels. When someone dies, we say, well, that person has become an angel or they've received their angel wings. No, that's not true. God made a fixed number of angels, all wholly original. Some have fallen, a third, and they're called demons but there's a fixed number of angels, God will never create any more, the Bible reveals. And so we don't become angels. Angels are distinctly different from people. Someday the Bible says we will judge angels. Angels don't multiply neither and have little angel babies called cherubs. Uh, This misunderstanding of people becoming like angels comes from a situation that Jesus encountered one day with the Sadducees. They were the religious liberals of the day. They denied the bodily resurrection. They denied the spiritual, invisible world of angels, and they denied life after death. And so to trip Jesus up, they come up with this incredibly ridiculous scenario of a woman who loses her husband and marries and marries seven times over, whose husband will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, you are mistaken not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God from the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He does not say we become angels, but we are like angels. It's a simile. And that in heaven, we are not married and do not have children. And unfortunately, even Christian artists have portrayed an inaccurate picture of the angelic realm. Very often you see these angels that look very effeminate, and these warm, soft, glowing robes, or sometimes it's fat little naked babies that go around with an arrow trying to make people feel love, I suppose. But in the Bible, when God's angels appear, it's rather awesome and sometimes terrifying. 
In fact, very often they greet the person they meet with the words, fear not. In other words, stop being terrified. The chronicler in describing one angel wrote, and the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. And the parallel account, the Bible tells us this angel destroyed 185,000 of Israel's enemies, not some little naked baby with an arrow. To add to the confusion, there are many who want to engage in the angelic realm, and they think it's rather entertaining, harmless, and maybe even fun. But knowing that the Bible reveals that everything spiritual is not spiritually good, when you enter into this realm through Ouija boards or seances or through games like Dungeons and Dragons and very much now through video games that children are playing across America, most of whom parents are totally oblivious to, their children are walking into the demonic realm. I don't think it's by accident that we've had 18 school shootings in the month of January. The first fatal this week where two children died. It's incredible the evil that is encompassing our nation. We don't even blink anymore, it seems, when we hear of a school shooting. It doesn't shock us anymore. Every single day it appears there's some new sexual scandal. The opiate epidemic, pandemic is out of control. I mean, things just seem to be getting worse and worse. And part of it is what is happening in the invisible realm, and most people don't see that. And then, of course, there are some so-called branches of Christianity who think it's virtually impossible to deal with the dark realm, and they say it takes a lot of holy water and maybe a crucifix pointed at some demon. But listen, our God is a sovereign God. He is in control over every aspect of angels, both holy and fallen. And we're going to see that even in relationship to those fallen minions that worship and live after the evil one, Satan. Now, for those uh, with us for the first time and for the benefit of the rest of us, because I know Peter taught, Jesus illustrated it, that repetition is the great learner and teacher I want to review for just a moment where we are in the book of Revelation. First, the broad context and the immediate context. By now, I think you will remember Revelation 119 gives us an overview of the entire book. The things that you've seen, that's chapter one. It's a vision of the glorified, resurrected Christ in heaven. The things which are, that's in reference to seven churches that were functioning in John's day, seven churches that in many ways are instructive to the entire body of Christ throughout this church age. And then beginning in chapter 4, he is to write about the things which will take place after these things. In other words, those things that follow after the churches. And so it's not by accident that from chapter 4 through the 19th chapter, the church is not present because the door is opened in heaven, which we saw was indicative of the church being caught up and raptured. Now, we're in that futuristic section then of the book. Chapter 4 on is futuristic. It has not yet happened. 
But we saw in the fourth and fifth chapter, the church caught up in heaven, worshiping the living God. But then when we came to the sixth chapter, like a shock to the senses, God begins to bring the wrath of the Lamb through the sealed judgments. And it's so intense that the initial reaction in 6.16 is the people say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him, that's Jesus, who sits on the throne, or of the Father who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb who's standing next to the Father. Now, critical to understanding chapters 6 through 19 is the heptatic structure. And so we've seen that there are a series of 21 judgments that come in three groups of seven. Heptatic is a 50 cent theological word for sevens. And so there are three groups of sevens. The first seven judgments come as seal judgments. And so this uh, next chart illustrates first uh, the four seals of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We spent a sermon on each one of those horsemen and their importance. Then we looked at the fifth seal, which brings us to those who are martyred for their faith during the time of the tribulation who are beheaded because they acknowledge Jesus as Lord and refuse to follow the Antichrist. Then we studied the sixth seal where there was some cosmic changes, the first of several that will lead up to the ultimate cosmic changes just before the coming of Christ, the second coming. And then we saw between the sixth and seventh seal a space of time. So the structure is the same, seven, 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 and between the sixth and seventh seal, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, between the sixth and seventh bowl, there's a parenthesis in each situation. And it looks back to give us a picture of what has been unfolding as the sealed trumpet and bowl judgments are coming upon the earth. So between the sixth and seventh seal is chapter seven. And God looks back And he shows us that as the seals are unfolding, he has saved 144,000 Jewish people who are preaching the gospel to the entire world. And it results in a great multitude of people that no one can number. They are so large, the number of people who come to believe in Jesus during that time. Then the seventh seal is broken. And we saw that in the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets, just like in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls of wrath. And so you can see on this next chart, these six trumpet judgments, and then between the sixth and the seventh trumpet is again a space of time. It's chapters 10 through 14. The 15th chapter is kind of an introduction to the bowl judgments, and then the bowl judgments begin to unfold in the 16th chapter. And so when the seventh seal is open and the first trumpet is ready to be sounded, the Bible teaches that there is silence in heaven for half an hour. Dead silence. This is the first silence recorded in all of the Word of God in heaven. Maybe the last, I don't know. But up until this time, this is the first piece of silence ever recorded in Scripture in heaven. There's silence in heaven. What is about to happen is so breathtaking, so awesome, so fearful that everyone is just absolutely quiet. They don't dare breathe a word. Jesus taught on the Mount of Olives that these judgments would be like a woman in labor. And so the birth pangs we saw began with the sealed judgments. We're not in the birth pangs today. 
We may be in the shadows of a pregnancy, but labor doesn't begin until the church is raptured. And so we saw how God divides in the Olivet Discourse this seven-year period into two halves. And so the sealed judgments begin in the first half, and then there's an event that takes place right in the middle of this seven-year period. Bring up the next slide, if you will. Uh, if you remember, there is a prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9 recording 490 years or 70 weeks of Israel's history. The Jewish people to this day not only have a week of days like we do, but they also have a week of years. And so 77s are 490 years. And as we studied Daniel, we saw that sometimes in a single verse of Scripture, and we illustrated it with a multiplicity of examples from the Bible, you will have both the first and second comings of Christ described. And so he describes and prophesies the first 483 years of Israel's history, and then he allows for a space of time, and we're in that space today. By the way, he writes this all before it ever happens, and it comes true to the precisest detail. This is why the critics hate Daniel, and they say Daniel was a late writer. He lived in the second century AD. He didn't write before Jesus 600 years prior. But Jesus doesn't refer to Daniel as Daniel the historian, but as Daniel the prophet. And of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls now confirm that their argument is sheer nonsense to say that Daniel wrote after the fact. And so the first 483 years happened just as he says. The space of time we're in right now is the church is being built, but then the church is going to be removed, and the 70th week, the last seven years, will begin. It's divided both by Paul, Jesus, Daniel, and John into two halves. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days each section. And the first half, Israel for the most part is protected. They are the center of attention during this seven year period. And it's not by accident that we see Israel on the map today, reestablished in the land in front and center. During the second half of the tribulation period, for the most part, Israel is persecuted. But right in the middle, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, Jesus said, look out. And people realize it, and so there's silence in heaven for half an hour. Now, let's tighten the context a little bit further. Let's begin reading here in verse 1 of chapter 8. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add to it the prayers of the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. We saw last time that just as there was a tabernacle that God had prescribed to Moses, later the temple, a more permanent structure. He didn't just make it up. The exact pattern and instructions were given to Moses, and the book of Hebrews reminds us that it was according to the tabernacle in heaven. There's a real tabernacle in heaven, and there was an altar there, and that's what we spoke about last time. And the smoke of the incense, verse 4, with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. 
And so we're told that when this censer is filled with the fire from the altar, there in the heavenly temple, the censer th- is thrown to the earth. And what happens, there's peals of thunder, sounds, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Very similar to the sounds we heard in the fourth chapter, except this time there's also an earthquake. You know, when a storm is brewing, the clouds get dark and they begin to boil and you begin to see flashes and you hear thunder and the storm comes. Well, this storm is coming and this time God brings an earthquake with it. Very often in scripture, I did a sermon one time just on earthquakes. And very often when God does an earthquake, he's either putting an exclamation mark on something he just did or he's giving a notice about something he is about ready to do. And of course, God's patience is beginning to wear thin. We read this morning in Psalm 103, he will not hold his anger forever. He is long-suffering, but there is a time when the wrath of God breaks way and it begins to unfold upon this earth. And the people in heaven recognize that, and that brings this silence. And so the first trumpet is revealed in verse 6. I called it last time the brewing storm. Look at verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. They were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So the first trumpet sounds, and it announces this judgment on the land, on the vegetation that grows upon the earth. Now, there's still plenty of green grass and vegetation, and again, this is very specific. It is a on the third of the earth. People often ask, is this real? This is very real. Unless there's a simile where God says it's like this or as this, in which case then you interpret the simile, the symbol, and then you literally believe the symbol as it's interpreted. But unless there's some symbol, you just take it at face value. You take it for what it says in the Egyptian plagues. And by the way, these trumpets later on, as we work through the Revelation, these trumpets will be referred to as plagues. And just as the plagues in Egypt were real, Real frogs, real gnat, real flies, real cattle that died, real boils, real hail, real locusts, real darkness, real death on all the firstborn. This is a real plague that comes upon the earth. And so I've told you many, many, many times, if the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense or you will come up with nonsense. And so Jesus literally interpreted prophecy. He believed that Jonah was swallowed up in a real fish. He believed that Noah and his family was placed into a real ark and a real worldwide flood. And you might want to circle the phrase a third. It's found 13 times, starting in verse 7 all the way through verse 12. In other words, this is not just some random event. This is a very planned, very specific form of judgment that God is meeting out. And again, it has changed from what it was earlier. We saw in the seal judgments how a fourth of the world was affected. Now it's been ratcheted up to a third. And when we come to the bold judgments, it will affect the entire world. Again, precisely what Jesus said, like a woman in labor. And of course, full labor breaks out with the abomination of desolation, which brings you into the second half where all the trumpet and bold judgments take place. First half of the tribulation, it's tribulation, it's milder 
but it's not anything compared to what begins to happen as the trumpet in bold judgments begin to unfold. And I don't think it's by accident, as I noted last time, that God repeatedly judges a third of this and a third of that. Because it is at this time that there's an unholy trinity. The number for God is three. We studied that earlier in our series. He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal persons. Even so, Satan, the great imitator, during this time, beginning with the abomination of desolation, will mimic the Holy Trinity. Satan will take the role of God the Father, the Antichrist, the role of God the Son, and the false prophet who points men to the Antichrist as the Spirit points men to Christ. He will take the role of God the Spirit. And so God will judge the world with thirds over and over. And this first judgment comes to a third of all the green foliage. And I suppose if the United Nation is still functioning, and if the president is meeting in the situation room, they're not going to have any answers. Verse 8. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea had and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. No doubt this is an asteroid of sorts and it brings about a mega tsunami. We talked a little bit about this last time and the Bible says a third of all the ships will be affected. Now, currently, as of 2017, there are 87,483 registered ships. We're not talking about your little motorboat. We're talking about registered ocean-going ships. That excludes the 108 countries in the world that have some size or form of a navy. And the Bible is very clear that a third of all those ships are going to be totally crippled. So think about what's going on. Food production has been immensely diminished in that a third of all the greenery has been taken out. A third of all the ships that carry our foodstuffs and products up and down the coast and around the world are now decommissioned. They are sunk, I suppose. Not to mention the Bible is clear that a third of all the sea life is now dead. There's stinking, rotting carcasses everywhere, fish, whales, dolphins, you name it. It's an awful thing. And so here's the world that has said no to God, and we're seeing this in our day. There are three kinds of wrath that are described in the Bible. Present wrath, tribulation wrath, future eschatological wrath. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed. And how does God's wrath be revealed today? He says when a nation says, we don't want God, we don't want to honor him, so God gives them over. And you see that downward spiral in Romans 1 that we are literally, visibly seeing lived out in this day, and it seems like every month there's something new and something worse. But that doesn't compare to the tribulation wrath which is a warning of the coming eternal wrath that is to follow. And so people today worship Mother Nature because they refuse to give God thanks or praise, and so we've substituted evolution in some foolish Christian men who call themselves apologists who are doing a great disservice to the Christian faith, who say that you can believe in theistic evolution. Listen, you cannot believe in theistic evolution and be a 
biblicist because it puts death before the fall. And the Bible is clear that death does not happen until after the fall. And so people are always looking for water on some planet, on some star, because in their mind, water is the womb of life. And God is going to judge the waters of this world, and it's going to be a miserable triple judgment that he brings. So there's the brewing storm, there's the bloody sea, but now there's the burning star. Look at verse 10. It says, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a lampost, a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. Now, both Isaiah and Job says that every star God has named and numbered. Uh, there was some, some place on the internet some years ago, you could buy a star and have it named after you. I thought, you can't be serious that somebody would spend money to some organization to say, this is my star. Well, listen, God has already got them all named and numbered, all right? So don't waste your money. But God is going to let one of these stars leave the orbit that it's in, and he's going to bring it down to the earth. You say, if that happened, there would be no earth. No, this is a controlled miracle. Just like the miracle in Philippi was a controlled miracle when the earthquake came, just like it was a controlled storm that came upon uh, Jonah in the great fish, this is a controlled star that falls. It comes like a lampos. It's used of a flaming torch. Think of it like a sparkler. And God is sending these portions of this star across the planet so that a great star fell from heaven like a a torch. And the scripture says in verse 10 that it was burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers in the springs of water. Now it's not just the ocean waters that are turned. Now it's the fresh waters, one third of them. Notice verse 11, the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. This star called wormwood, absintha in Greek, there's a famous popular liquor that people drink around the world by the same name. I've never had it, don't plan to, but they say it tastes absolutely awful, but people like it because of the buzz it gives them. I'm always amazed how people will learn to drink something that tastes horrible so they can get buzzed. I hope you don't use alcohol. I hope you're not buying into the foolishness of now many evangelical leaders that 30 years ago was virtually obsolete, this new position that it's okay to be a sipping saint. I hope you're not. You're very foolish if you are, and you are diminishing God's power in your life. You are short-circuiting the work of the Spirit of God in you. I've never seen a Christian who drinks beer or wine be used mightily of God. They say, I'm being used, not like you could be. Sometimes God uses you in spite of you, but not because of you. And this, of course, uh, is likened these waters to wormwood. This plant in Israel is a very bitter plant. But this effect called wormwood is not just bitter water. It's deadly water. And many died from the waters because they were made bitter. That brought us to the fourth trumpet. It's important I bring you into the context or it's not going to make sense. Are you still with me? All right, good. The fourth trumpet, the blackened sky, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck. So that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. So now the sun, moon, and stars are affected. A third would be darkened, affecting both the day and the night. 
And so we've seen once before God affecting the celestial bodies. The greatest expression will happen right before the second coming. But because men love the darkness rather than the light, they'll have opportunity to play in the darkness like never before. The days will be shortened. Again, that will affect the temperatures on the world. That will affect the growing season. Amos chapter 8 predicted this. God's speaking of this coming day that we call the tribulation. And the prophet Amos, he says, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark and broad daylight. I'll tell you what, the worship of the stars and the planet and all the people who follow their horoscopes, it's going to collapse at this point. God is going to deal with men right where it hits them the hardest. Then I looked, verse 13, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. It's as if God in his mercy informs mankind there are three more severe judgments, so get ready, get right with God. Some say this cannot be an eagle because he is speaking. He doesn't say this is like an eagle. He said, I heard an eagle flying. Listen, if God can make a parrot talk, if God can make a donkey speak, he can make an eagle shout. Those are the first words in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you can believe those words, you can believe anything that follows. God is going to send a warning because he does not take delight in the destruction of men. And this is aimed 12 times over, specifically and primarily on those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers peoples whose perspective is this life only. Whoa, whoa, whoa. These are just the opposite of born-again Christians. Their focus is not on a citizenship in heaven, but a citizenship here on earth. Now that brings us into these three woe trumpets. There on your note-taking outline, we're going to begin with the first one today as we consider the horrible personality that is introduced. The horrible personality that is introduced. Now the description that follows is of a fearful demon who releases a host of demons by the divine permission of God Almighty. And so we're introduced here in verse 1 to this horrible personality here termed a star who gives leadership to a force of evil like the world has never seen. And two truths are revealed about this star. First, this star is an angel. This star is an angel. Again in verse 1, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Now we've been witnessing how the judgments have been intensifying in horror. And now as the seven judgments come, we're in full labor. We're in the second half of the tribulation period. And so what takes place here in chapter 9 is like nothing the world has ever seen before. Now, if you took my Wednesday night course on angels, you will remember there are a number of terms that are used to describe angels in the Bible. Here's a list of some of the more popular usages. They're called uh, angels. They're called B'nai Elohim, sons of God. They're called holy ones. They're called hosts. They're called ministers. They serve us. They're called chariots. They move with great speed. They're called 
watchers and that they are uh, out on duty for the living God. They're called sons of the mighty and they are called, like in the book of Job, and as here as stars. The word star in both Hebrew and Greek can be used of a literal star or it can be used of an angelic star. I saw a star from heaven. What kind of star is this? It's an angelic star. How do you know? Look at the pronoun at the end of the verse. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He's referring to an angelic person. Not to mention this could not be a star because a key is given to him that we're going to see in a moment will unlock a place known as the abyss. Hey, look, we use the word that way even in English. We speak of a sports star or of a movie star. Now, remember, Job referred to the angels of God who sung with joy. The morning stars sung with joy at the day of the creation. He calls angels stars. So there are many references to this. And I, the reason I take the time for this is because we just saw a real literal star in 810. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, but now we're dealing with an angelic person, a star, and they're used interchangeably. But not only is this an angel... This specifically is a fallen angel. Now, please notice specifically what kind of angel he is. He is fallen. He is what we might call a demon. Now, let me pause for a moment because some English translations do not bring out the precision of the Greek New Testament here. If you're using the old King James, it says, I saw a star fall from heaven, like John was there witnessing the star fall from heaven. But the New King James, using the same manuscripts as all the other English translations, specifically render it, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. It's in a perfect tense. If you remember your English, remember, it's already happened. It's in the past. It had fallen sometime in the past. It was already upon the earth. But some uh, confuse this, I think, quickly without carefully looking at the context of Revelation. And they think, well, this must be Satan. Because Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like a star from heaven. Well, we're going to see in the 12th chapter, a third of all the angels fell when Satan fell. Not to mention in every single instance in Scripture, when Satan is in view, he is specifically identified. And that is emphasized and underscored, especially as we will walk through the revelation. It's like you can't miss it. He's talking about Satan. And if God wanted us to recognize this was Satan, he'd let us know. But this is not Satan. This is an angel by an entirely different name. So that's the horrible personality that is introduced. It's a star who is both an angel and he is a fallen angel. Secondly, let's think for a moment about the horrible place that is opened. The horrible place that is opened. Two truths are revealed to us about this place called the bottomless pit or the abyss. First, the abyss is a deep place. It's a deep place. Again here in verse 1, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. So this fallen angel is given a key to the bottomless pit that unlocks a door that separates some dark, evil, heinous world from the one that we are living in. And we're given a glimpse into the hidden, invisible, supernatural, fallen realm that this key will open. And it's called the abyss. Now, it's important because in the Greek text, it says the key of the pit of the abyss. The key of the pit of the abyss. 
And the reason I'm going to bring this out is because in some translations you may be using, all the way through the passage in verse 1, 2, and 11, it just translates it bottomless pit. In other translations, it translates it in all three instances, abyss. The New American Standard translates it in verses 1 and 2 as bottomless pit, and then in verse 11 is abyss. And the reason I bring it out, and really all those translations are fine, because we're referring to the same place. But the NASB is really precise here. Bottomless pit together. Abusus pit, all right? The Greek word abusus, it means bottomless. And when they're brought together side by side, then the NAS writes bottomless pit. When you come to verse 11, the word pit's not in the verse, though a lot of English translations include it. It's just the word abusis, abyss. And that's helpful. I'll tell you why it's helpful. Because the word bottomless pit or abyss that is describing this place that is a, a proper name. It's a proper name in the first century. Jewish people knew about the abyss. Jesus and the gospel speak about the abyss. Now, let's stop for just a moment and think about our angelology. Remember, all the angels originally that God created were holy. They fell. Two-thirds of the angels are now holy. One-third of the angels are now fallen. Let's just deal with the fallen angels. The fallen angels can be divided into three categories. There are some fallen angels who um, have freedom this morning to wage war. So Paul the Apostle warns us against this, that we do not wage war simply against people, flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. You think that 15-year-old kid with a gun in his hand who shot those two precious young people? I'm telling you, they're demonic force. 18 shootings in the month of January. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. There are demonic forces that are at work. This is bigger than anybody really realizes and understands. And so there are angels, fallen angels, who have the ability to wage war. And we saw that illustrated, what Paul taught in Ephesians 6 in Daniel 10, where we saw these various demons who are over various countries and, and territories and so forth. There's a second category of these fallen angels, not only those who are free to wreak havoc, but there's a second category who are in eternal chains. And so if you were with me in my series on Genesis years ago, we saw that the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, one of the titles for angels, cohabitated with the daughters of men. Angels can take on human bodies. That's why when Lot's door is being broken down, the men of Sodom want to have a physical relationship with the angels because they had come in human bodies. Whenever they appear in Scripture, they appear in male bodies. In either case, they left their proper esteem, and of course, the New Testament compares that to homosexuality, that someone abandons the natural for the unnatural. Same comparison Peter and Jude both make. But because they did something that was so heinous, where they cohabitated with the daughters of men, Jude 6, 2 Peter 2 fourths says that they are in eternal bonds of darkness. They are chained up in a place, the English text says hell, the Greek text says Tartarus. They are in a place of eternal bonds. They can never wreak havoc again. God's locked them up and thrown away the key. And of course, that place will actually ultimately become like Hades, a part of the lake of fire. There's a third category. So there's those who are free, there are those who are in eternal bonds, but there are some that are temporarily restrained. 
And there in the place that we're looking at this morning, it's called the abyss. Now remember the temptation of Christ, Matthew 4. What's the other four? Luke 4. Come on now. Matthew 4, Luke 4. Temptation of Christ. Another big expression of evil is when uh, Jesus goes through a graveyard one day, Mark, uh, Matthew 8, Luke 8, all right? Easy to remember in Mark 5, all right? So it's found in the synoptics, that miracle. And he finds these two men, and they're incapacitated by uh, a group of demons known as legion. In fact, there's 2,000 plus that are ultimately cast into a herd of swine. And of course, these are evil demons. I mean, they have done a job on this man. He beats himself. He cuts himself. He he uh, runs around naked. Uh, they, they try to restrain him with chains and men gang up on him and he eventually breaks them. I mean, can you imagine visiting your loved one in a graveyard and meeting this guy? And of course, Jesus comes and confronts him. And the scripture says, they, these demons, were imploring him not to command them to go into the abyss. That's the place we're talking about, this place of incarceration. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. Now, as bad as these demons were, Jesus chooses in his sovereignty that they had not crossed the line where they would go into the abyss where they would be temporarily restricted. And so they are given freedom and you see their destructive nature as they take this herd of swine and they run it right down into the Sea of Galilee. We will be, God willing, there on that very spot in just a few months. There's only one place in all of the Sea of Galilee where it could have taken place. Now, so these are the various levels of freedom. Total freedom to wage war under the sovereignty of God. No freedom in a place called Tartarus because they abandon their proper estate. And then those demons who are so heinous and wicked, God has temporarily put them in the abyss. But that abyss is going to open up someday. And the worst of the worst of the worst, look, just like all humans are not, all are depraved, but don't all show the same expressions of depravity. Even so, angels are real people too. They're not human persons, they're angelic persons, but they have all of the characteristics of personhood, intellect, emotion, will. There are various expressions of depravity even in this realm. And ultimately, all of them, the whole ball of wax, will end up in the lake of fire. Listen, contrary to popular mythology and a lot of people's theology, Satan is not in hell today. In fact, there are no people in hell today. In fact, Satan has never, ever, ever been in hell, ever. He has total freedom to wage war. And people today who are lost are not in hell, they're in Hades. And death and Hades are thrown ultimately the final resting place into the lake of fire. So Satan's not in hell, he has freedom, and there are no demons in hell, but someday all of the demons along with Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. In fact, Satan is going to spend a little time in the abyss during the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. He's going to be locked up in the abyss, and then he'll be released for a short time. All right, so this is a deep place. The word abyss literally means abusa, a bottomless, uh, something is just, just open. It's a bottomless pit. Secondly, not only is it a deep place, it's a dark place. It's a dark place. Look now, if you will, at verse 2. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit. 
Wow, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Now, when I say the abyss is a dark place, I mean both physically and spiritually. When the pit is open, smoke emerges, a a dark smoke like a, a great furnace that has been opened up. And God gives warnings, I think, in the Bible, not to scare us, but to warn us and to protect us so that we would get right with Him. And by God allowing smoke to come up out of the abyss and for you to be able to visibly read of what is going to happen in the future, He's given you an ultimate picture of the eternal wrath and the lake of fire. Jesus describing hell, the final resting place, it says, and He will throw them into a furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll study that when we come to the 20th chapter. So the smoke is thick, it's dark, such that, notice, the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Now, that's imagery that ought to get people to stop and think before they joke about hell. The smoke polluted the air so much that it darkened the sun, which had already been darkened by the sixth seal, but again, that was temporary. And, uh, and it had been darkened with the blowing of the fourth trumpet. But this smoke comes out, and it literally is terrorizing. And what is so frightening is not just the smoke, but what comes out of the smoke. What's described here as locusts. Now, the abyss is being opened up. Imagine if our government this afternoon said, we're going to release every prisoner in America. They're all going to be free. Not a pleasant place to live. Well, I'm telling you, suddenly, under the hand of a sovereign God, the abyss is going to be open, and the worst of the worst demons who have not lost all of their freedom will be free, and they will reign chaos and pain and suffering 10,000 times 10,000 worse if every prisoner in America were let out. Now, there's no reason these demons um, have had their freedom to wage war in the heavenlies taken away such that they are in the abyss. <coughs> Follow this. Just as there are, again, degrees of depravity that man can show itself, so there are demons that have various expressions of evil. And so they are in the abyss for this region. And so these who are called legion, they're afraid that before the time, the final time in the lake of fire, Jesus is going to send them to the abyss, and then they're going to lose their opportunity to operate. But as bad as what they've done, and I read that account in in Mark 5, Matthew 8, Luke 8, and I think, man, these these creatures were evil, what they did to these two men and how they function in these two men and, and what their commitment was to these two men. And yet they weren't worthy of the abyss. Look out. You think about that. You think about these dirty, diabolical demons and how much Satan and all of his minions hate you the next time he tempts you. So this place is opened, and that brings us finally to this horrible plague that is released. The horrible plague that is released, and it's described in two ways. First, the limited power of this plague. The limited power. We read now in verse 3, then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. Again, as terrifying as the smoke is, What is even worse beyond the fact that it darkens the sun is what comes out of it. And what comes out, these demons are likened to locusts because they are a great number. They are vast in number. 
Uh, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I left home to become a campus pastor in 1978. And I came back a year later, and it was in the summer months in July. And I was just kind of shocked because as I drove into our hometown, all the trees had aluminum foil wrapped around them about four or five feet up the trees. And the leaves were just like beginning to form all over again. And it was July. I was witnessing in the middle of July, which you would have seen in uh, late April, early May in New England, depending on the winter. And what had happened is uh, this bug called the cicadas, who come out every 17 years, came out and they literally just ate everything. I mean, it, just, it was just kind of, it was a kind of a gray scene. Well, I don't know a whole lot about locusts, but I've done a study on them, and I'm told that cicadas do about one one-hundredth of the damage of locusts. They literally eat everything. But again, uh, God is sovereign in this, and God is in control of all this, and there's a reason why, though they're not going to eat anything in this case, he compares them to locusts. Now, when I saw that in Worcester, Massachusetts, it reminded me of the plague that Moses spoke of, for they had covered the surface of the whole land. Can you imagine that? Just locusts everywhere. All you see is locusts on the ground everywhere, millions and millions of them. And so like a dark cloud, they come out of the abyss so that the land was darkened and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. And by the way, even this was a controlled miracle, wasn't it? Because in the land where the Jews lived, there were no locusts. God is sovereign. He knows what he's about. But when locusts come, they devour every green thing. They consume every blade of grass, every flower. They often even eat the bark off the tree. And of course, enough time has elapsed between the first trumpet and this fifth trumpet so that what was lost green-wise in the first trumpet has a chance to grow. Remember, we're in the second half. The trumpet and bold judgments take three and a half years. So these demons that are described as, as locusts are not locusts. They're unlike locusts and that they don't harm the vegetation. These locusts are not coming for plants. They're coming for humans. They're not coming after the green vegetation. They're coming after the souls of men. Look at verse 4. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, if you remember between the parenthesis, the interlude of the sixth and seventh seal, God gave us a chance to catch our breath and showed us what was going on during the time of the first six seals. And so in Revelation 7, 3, and 4, God said, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That's what we're talking about here this morning. You can harm people, but you cannot harm those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. God protects these 144,000. Why? Because they are his voice boxes. They are the ones who are preaching the gospel. God, even in the midst of all the agony that is coming upon the earth, is still wanting people to be saved from the wrath that is going to come. If you remember on that occasion when Satan comes into the throne room of God with some of his imps, and he says, God, the only reason Job loves you is because you've bought his love. 
take away the things you've given him. We'll see how much he loves you. And so God gave Satan permission. He said, then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So again, the same picture, God is sovereign, as Martin Luther rightly said, the devil is God's devil. They have a limited power. Secondly, beyond the limited power of this plague, I want you to see the enduring pain of this plague, the enduring pain of the plague. Look now, if you will, at verse 5, and they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. These demons have the power to sting like a scorpion, a sting that is known to be very painful. I had a friend who was bitten by a scorpion. He said it was incredibly painful. I've never been stung. I hope I never will. But while it is bad, it is rarely ever fatal in humans. Again, as this chapter reveals, these are not literal locusts because locusts, number one, do not have scorpion-like stings in their tails. But while these demons are not permitted to kill anyone, they are allowed to torment people. And three times over in the verse, for emphasis, you find the word torment. And it's a very specialized Greek word that was used outside of the Bible in the first century of that torturous process on the infamous rack. The infamous rack where a man was stretched out, it was called this very term. And of course, unlike a locust, because these are not literal locusts, where the sting lasts for 24 hours, the pain that these locusts bring lasts for five months. You say, oh, five months, that's not so bad. Listen, five months may feel like a long time, I suppose, if you're waiting for something good to happen but it feels like an eternity when you're waiting for something bad to end. It is so bad, so incredibly painful, verse 6 says, and in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. The pain they inflict would be so immense they would welcome to die rather than to experience it. And the Bible makes it very clear, though they long to die, death will flee from them. No form of suicide will work. They may try to pull the gun and the demon takes it away. They may try to take a knife and the demon allows it not to go through. They may jump in the water and the demons lift them up out. He may jump off a cliff and the demons will catch them. Men will seek death. They will seek suicide, but they will not be able to find it. And so beginning in verse 7, the apostle John will have to resort to some simile to describe the horrific pain and torture that these people, these demonic people bring. Now, some think this is very hard to interpret the next verse, but it's not as hard as they make it because if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, other prophetic sections open it up. Look at verse 7. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. Now, the word like that appears here seven times in verses 7 through 10 tells us these demons were not real horses, 
that their crowns were not really gold, that their faces were not really human. These creatures are not some freak of nature. He's using simile here. They're likened to horses because of the speed of conquest a horse would bring. They're likened to have heads wearing crowns because Satan has always wanted to rule. And when Jesus describes us in our unregenerate, lost, pre-born again state, he says our attitude is like these demons. We do not want him to reign over us. That's the heart of all sin. You have to yield that if you're ever going to be saved. And their faces were like the faces of men. Now, the four living creatures had faces like men as well. Again, simile. And I think God uses the face of a man to help us to see that these fallen angels have intelligence and emotion and reason as they go about inflicting pain. By the way, the, the ability of demons to change their appearance will become evident as we work through the revelation. For instance, when we come to the 16th chapter, they will appear as frogs. Think about that, ladies. Next time you have your little frog on your counter, all right? Look at verse 8. They had hair like the hair of a woman, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. Now, a woman's hair is a symbol of her glory, but it can also be a symbol of seduction, And in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, it doesn't say in the last days, but in latter times, and we've distinguished how God uses those two terms in the Bible, if you've been with me. Latter times refer to the last of the last days, that there will be seductive spirits that will come upon the earth. And so they will come and they will seduce people thinking that they're walking into something wonderful, but it will come with a bite like the teeth of a lion. Like their master, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so the devil seductively lures people in, and then he bites their head off like a lion. I mean, these demons are hideous. They're brilliant in their approach. Look now at verse 9. We read further of them. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. So these demons have impenetrable armor. It's not like you can take a gun or a a rocket and shoot them through. You cannot destroy them. You cannot kill them. And the sound is just ominous for five months. Their, their wings are constantly vibrating in the earlobes of folks, sounding like chariots that are rushing. And there's no place to hide. Now, some have tried to lessen the strangeness of these judgments by saying, well, these are missiles spitting helicopters and tanks that send out bullets that sting. But that style is totally unjustified. There's no biblical basis for interpreting the Bible that way. And while it will sell books and feed the minds of the deviant, I'll tell you, my friend, it takes away from what God wants us to understand. He is unfolding and unveiling here for us the evil that is going to come. He wants you to see how evil evil is. And sometimes... We don't see it as that evil and we toy with it and we play with it, but it is destructive and it is harmful and Satan wants to ruin you. Verse 10, they have tails like scorpions and stings in their tails. That is the power to hurt men for five months. 
Again, this is both unnecessary and an abuse of Scripture to try to spiritualize these symbols and, and to replace it with modern warfare when God wants you to see the horror of this judgment. And I suppose another reason that God likens them here to locusts is because the normal lifespan of a locust is five months. But their sting is 24 hours. These are not real locusts. And their sting is for five hours. Not to mention, look at verse 11. It also tells us these are not literal locusts. They have a king over them. Proverbs 30 and verse 27 reminds us that locusts have no king. But these have a king over them. The angel of the abyss, because this is an angel over these fallen locust-like angels. In his name, the angel of the abyss in Hebrew is Apollon. And in Greek, he has the name, I mean, in Hebrew, it's Abaddon. And in Greek, it is Apollon. Two names, two languages, and in both languages, it just means destruction. And so appropriate because Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But he said, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal and to destroy. Verse 12, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. If you think this is bad, you haven't seen anything yet. Now let's think about how this applies to us today. What are the timeless lessons since all Scripture is given for our profit to equip us? What can we do with this information today? Number one, I'm reminded from this passage that God, our God, is sovereign in every realm of His creation. As God's people, we can be thankful, as Jesus said in the opening chapter, that He has the keys of death and of Hades. God exercises absolute authority over Satan and it's all according to his timetable. When we come down to verse 15 of this chapter, it says that this has been prepared for the hour and the day and a month and a year. It's all under his control. And we've seen that just in these verses. Look at verse 1. The key was given to him. He didn't have the key. He couldn't get it if he wanted it. It had to be given to him. Verse 3, power was given to them. It's delegated, temporary power. It's not inherent. Verse 4, they were told not to hurt the foliage. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 5, they were not permitted to kill anyone. Our sovereign Lord is firmly in control over what is happening. And I'd tell you, even during the tribulation, he has it all under his feet. And it's easy to despair in the day that we are living in. And even if you're here this morning and you're going through some heartache in your life and it seems like you are in total chaos and your life is totally out of control, our God is on his throne. His providence extends to your life and he knows whether it's for five months or five years or five hours. And he knows the exact depth and extent of the trial that you're going to go through. It hasn't caught him by surprise. God is never unseated. Luther knew this so well when he was under attack and feared for his own life. And he wrote these words we sing so often. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. That's the first lesson. God is sovereign in every realm of his creation, even over the demonic realm. Secondly, God uses difficulty from the long view and not the short view. 
God is looking from the long view. Do you think God's up in heaven enjoying people being tortured? No, God is looking at the long view. His eye is on eternity, not for the pain that lasts for a season. Very often I am reminded when great tragedy comes into a life of a person that God has an eternal purpose in it. Sometimes we are being refined. Sometimes you uh, find yourself with some terminal disease or you find that you're going to have some chronic sickness or you lose someone that is so precious and close to you and your heart just breaks. But you later thank God, even in the midst of it, trusting God because you recognize because of this, I found the Lord or because of this, my loved one found the Lord or because of this, God broke this stronghold in my life. And because of this, God used it for good. King David said, look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. God has a way of using affliction to refine us, to cleanse us. The psalmist said, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. God in times of affliction revives the human heart sometimes like in no other time in life. And I would just ask you, when you go through an affliction, what would be better for a person at this time? To be in torment for five months and in the process to think of the reality of the wrath that is yet to come and to get saved? Or would it be better for there to be no torment for the five months, not to get right with the living God, and then to walk into an eternal torment that is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Listen, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from his way and live. That's what God's about in this time. Third and finally, the time of this coming earthly horror and the time of God's coming eternal horror can both be escaped. I thank the Lord that this prophecy does not end here. We already studied earlier in the Revelation in the third chapter, God speaking to the church at Philadelphia, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. There's never ever in the history of man been a time of testing that has come upon the whole planet, never once, never recorded. You can't spiritualize revelation and write this off. This time is coming upon the whole planet. And Jesus said that he will keep you from, ek, out of, not dia through, not on in. He will remove you out of this hour of testing. God said to the church at Thessalonica that they are to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians 5, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus. God promised not to pour wrath out upon his bride, the church. Look, just like God removed Lot before he brought fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. And just like God removed Noah and his family before he flooded the whole world, God is going to remove his people. And so you don't have to go through the great tribulation. And if you do and you're listening to the sound of my voice, you'll never get out of it because the Bible is clear that if you won't believe now, you will not believe then.
I was on an airplane not long ago trying to get to Boston. I mean, it was a travesty that day. The computers were down, couldn't even scan people. We got on and off that airplane three times. Finally, we got on the airplane and the stewardess said, if you're heading for Boston, Mass., you're on the right plane, but if you're not headed for Boston, you need to get off of this airplane. My friend, if you're headed for hell and eternal wrath, you would be wise to get off the world's course and to get on God's train that will carry you to glory. It's your only hope, and you can only get there through Jesus. He's the only one who can forgive. Holy Father, Thank you that this is not simply what you have said some 2,000 years ago through the pen of John, but this is what you are saying. And may we have ears to hear it today. May we not be overwhelmed with the darkness that seems to just keep invading our nation and our world. May we be reminded today that all of it is under your sovereign control, that Satan and all of his fallen demons can only do what you allow. But help us not to dismiss the evil behind the evil. Help us to realize that your ways are best, that the folly that Satan offers us is only for our destruction and to rob us of real life. I pray today, Father, for someone who has a false assurance, who think that they can call Jesus Lord and live like Satan. People who drink, smoke, use dope and pills, who fornicate, commit adultery, are violent, and yet they call themselves born-again Christians. What a shock they will be in for for all of eternity if they don't get right. Father, help someone today to call upon Jesus as Lord, to say, I no longer want to reign over myself. Lord Jesus, through your blood, I want you to come in and forgive me and rule and reign my life. Would you do that? Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have, I will love you and follow you the rest of my days. Father, help someone else who's never been baptized to obey you by taking on that important symbolic confession. And help someone here that needs a church home to come and partner with us, not to critique us, not to criticize us, but to get in the trenches with us to win men and women and boys and girls for Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.